come in and get settled. I'm already behind, sorry, student driver. Yeah, I blamed you. <laughs> so bad we got honked out by an older lady today. It wasn't even his fault, though. I get the pick on you. Awesome. All right. Well, let's get started. If I get started, I want to say happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in here. You guys are such a blessing to us all, and um, hopefully you're a blessing to your, your kids as well. So we just thank you and hope you guys have a wonderful, wonderful Mother's Day and uh, get to enjoy spend time with your family. So thank you for that. Um, so we're going to be back in 2 Timothy today. Uh, going through some, I'm going to do a little bit of a review back up just a little bit because it kind of feeds into the section that we're doing today. Um, and then um, and we'll go from there. So I'm going to start reading in verse 6. Um, we're really going to be focused on 8 through 11, hopefully. I may stop at 10. I'm but um, 8 through 11 is what I prepared, um, but we're going to go back, start at 6, so we can get the full focus of what Paul is uh, rendering here. He's trying to get his point across. So if you'll open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, we'll be reading, I'll start in verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now it's been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher." Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just, first of all, just thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for, the, for the, the privilege and just the ability to be able to come and to hear your word read, hear your word preached, and just to have the fellowship with other believers, Lord. Lord, your word is so precious. And Lord, it is a treasure that we should search for continually throughout it to, to better our lives, to help us to grow and to be more Christ-like. And Lord, we are so thankful for it, Lord. I pray that you would just allow your word to speak to us today, Lord. I pray that we are handling it diligently and that we are being workmen who know how to handle it and who know how to discern it, Lord. Lord, we thank you for it, Lord. Pray for a blessing on this time as we, we go and turn into your word and to get to know it more. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So I've kind of titled this message, Timothy's Needed Encouragement. Um, as we know, we've been going through the uh, going through this where Paul is in prison, and Timothy he's writing to Timothy who is in Ephesus, and he's trying to encourage him about things that are going to happen. But he is also making sure that he knows that his son in the faith and the next in line is ready to carry out the mission and to ready to carry out and to continue to spread the word. Before I dive in, I wanted to read a little um, little story here. I called it "Wavering Your Faith." It says, "Once upon a time, a daughter complained to her father that her life was miserable." and that she didn't know how she was going to make it. She was tired of fighting and struggling all the time. It seemed just as one problem was solved, another one soon followed. Her father, a chef, took her to the kitchen. He filled three pots with water and placed each on a high fire. Once the three pots began to boil, he placed potatoes in one pot, eggs in the second pot, and ground coffee beans in the third pot. He then let them sit and boil without saying a word to his daughter. 
The daughter moaned and impatiently waited, wondering what, was, what he was doing. After 20 minutes, he turned off the burners. He took potatoes out of the pot and placed them in a bowl. He pulled the eggs out and placed them in a bowl. He then ladled the coffee out and placed it in a cup. Turning to her, he asked, daughter, what do you see? She replied, potatoes, eggs, and coffee. Look closer, he said, and touch the potatoes. She did, and she noted they were soft. He then asked her to take an egg and break it. After pulling off the shell, she observed the hard-boiled egg. Finally, he asked her to sip the coffee. Its rich aroma brought a smile to her face. Father, what does this mean, she asked. He then explained that the potatoes, the eggs, and the coffee beans each had faced the same adversity, the boiling water. However, each one reacted differently. The potato went in strong, hard, and unrelenting. But in the boiling water, it became soft and weak. The egg was fragile with a thin outer shell protecting its liquid interior, interior until it was put in the boiling water. Then the inside of the egg became hard. However, the ground coffee beans were unique. After they were exposed to the boiling water, they changed the water and created something new. So he asked his daughter, which one are you? When, at, when adversity knocks on your door, how do you respond? Are you a potato, an egg, or a coffee bean? So the moral of this story, I see it, is in our Christian walk, things are going to happen all around us. They're going to happen to us. But the only thing that truly matters is how we allow the Spirit of God to work in us and to make our lives better for Him. Life is about learning, adopting, and converting all the struggles that we experience into something positive. When I first was doing, read the story, I was thinking that as a Christian, we can be all three of those things sometimes. But as I read it more, I think we need to be more like the coffee beans. Right? When we look back at the Old Testament, what did they lift up to God? It was an incense, a special fragrance to God. And I think we need to be that in this society. Yes, sometimes we need to be hard. We need to make sure that we are not submitting and giving in to the world. And that's what the story is about with Timothy. It's not giving in to the false doctrine and the false teachers. Right? But sometimes we do need to be soft, not like a potato squished. But as in 2 Timothy, he tells him he needs to be gentle, correcting, with, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. So soft in that way. But also, though, we need to change the world around us, right? We need to become like the coffee beans, and people need to see the Spirit of God within us and be a, a, a nice aroma to everybody that we come in contact with. So I think we can be all three, but ultimately I think that we need to change the environment we in, we're in as much as we can. And that's what he's telling Timothy, right? He's saying, don't let them change you, you change them. So as we get into this message today, like I said, I want to start back in verse 6, and he says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on my hands. And why do I bring that back? I bring it back a little bit because when he goes for verse 8, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed, which I think is the moral, the theme of all of this that we're getting ready to get into. That's the theme that we're going through is do not be ashamed. But he wants to go back and therefore do not be ashamed because of the gift that is in you. Paul knows that Timothy hasn't lost his gift. Timothy knows that he has not squandered his gift right now. But he knows that he's starting to waver a little bit. And so we want to encourage him. We talked last week a little bit how kindling a fire is not as easy as it seems, right? When you light a fire, we have to give it a little air. We have to give it a little bit of breathing on it unless we just use lighter fluid or something like that and a spark. But to get a true fire going from start takes a little bit of work. And that's what he's telling him again to do is kindle that gift that God had given him, the prophecy about him, to get it going. And then verse 7, he says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And it's because of those things that in verse 8 he starts off, 
do not be ashamed. Therefore, do not be ashamed. So when we ask interaction time, when I say, when he says do not be ashamed, what, what, is, what does that mean to you guys? What, do you mean, what does it mean to not be ashamed? Okay, not being embarrassed, yeah. Hiding, hiding from the things, yeah, carrying away from. Right. Yeah. So there's not be associated with something, right? Yeah, yeah. I think you got the Greek there. You're good. <laughs> it's a pretty good, pretty translated word here. All my Greek knowledge that I have, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so hesitant to bring the, up the gospel and to talk about it, talk about subjects around it with other people, yeah. Yeah, so you guys are all hidden. It's not be ashamed, it's just what it says, to disassociate yourself with whatever that is, right? And so what Paul's telling Timothy is, do not be ashamed. He starts off, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. So when we think about the testimony of the, of the Lord, what is that necessarily? I think it's a, a bunch of things, mostly it's the gospel, Right? The testimony of the Lord and Savior is the gospel. The testimony of our Lord himself, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? That is the testimony of the Lord. But I want to look a little further because John, if you want to turn your Bibles to John chapter 5. Jesus himself gives an explanation of what the testimony is. And when we talk somebody's testimony, when we think about a testimony, we think about when we, tell, we talk somebody, when we tell somebody we're going on a mission field, we're going to tell somebody our testimony. It's what happened in our life, right? And what makes that even stronger is when you have witnesses to back that up. And in the culture back then, as we know, even in the church that day, if you had something against somebody, you had to have witnesses with you, right, to take you with you. In the Old Testament, if you want to bring something against a preacher, a preacher or I mean, a priest or even against a fellow person, it had to be at the witnesses, there's one or two witnesses, so that your testimony was true. So in John chapter 5, Starting in verse 33, it's going to be a little bit of reading, I apologize, but it's really good. Um, we have here four witnesses of the testimony of Christ. First, we have the, we'll have the witness of John the Baptist, then we have the witness of the works that Jesus did, we have the witness of the Father, and then we have the witness of the Scriptures, which y'all can see probably from the headings in your Bibles. So it says in verse 33, it starts, you have sent to John... And he has testified to the truth. You know, we look back on what he said about Jesus. He says, he is who, as we said, the one has come. I am his forerunner. He is the one. He is the son. His sandals are, I'm not fit to untie. He was the priest predecessor before. We're learning that in Acts, right? Before Christ. So as I can do nothing, I mean, sorry, he says, you have sent John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was sinning. I mean, was shining, sorry. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Verse 36 starts with witness of his works. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. 
For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me, that the Father has sent me. Verse 37, and the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me, so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have sent your, uh, who have you set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So what the testimony of our Lord is just simply that. It's what Christ came to do for us. It's what God sent him to do for us. And Paul is telling Timothy, do not be ashamed of this. Do not be disassociating yourself from the true testimonies out there. Right? And Paul even says, instead of being ashamed, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. See, Paul considered it against to be ashamed not to preach the gospel, right? He's reversing what he's saying here, do not be ashamed, do not be set aside, Timothy. He said, you should feel ashamed if you're not out preaching the gospel and you're not out testifying for what the Lord has said. And then he goes on and he continues with, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. And I th- see there, a testimony of our Lord. So Paul is not setting Timothy aside. He is joining with him, our Lord. It's such a personal statement there when he's talking to Timothy about this. He's not saying your Lord. He's not saying my Lord. It's the same Lord for both of them. And he joins in with that. And he says, do not test our Lord or me, his prisoner. So Paul is again telling Timothy, do not be ashamed because I'm in prison. Right? So, again, we remember where Paul is at this time. He's in a dungeon. And it was very sh- shameful. People did not want to be associated with Paul at this time. People did not mean we turn around. All of Asia have disowned me. People deserted me in my first trials. So people were turning away from Paul at this time. People were not wanting to be Christians. They wanted to be called Christians because when they were called Christians, bad things were happening to them, right? You had Nero that was persecuting the church. And he had convinced all the Gentiles out there that you are, if you are a Christian, you are a horrible person. You are a cult. You are following after a mythological um, false god and that you were just a detriment to society and that you need to be done away with. And so Paul is encouraging Timothy here to not be ashamed of being a follower of his, to not be ashamed of being a follower of Christ, most importantly. He's asking him to not be ashamed to visit him because he encourages him to come see him, right, and bring stuff for him. So as we look at our lives, how does that reflect in our lives? We've got to think about that, right? How do we view suffering for Christ and not being ashamed? How do we resist being ashamed? I think Paul kind of states it here a little bit too. His next verse, or next words, he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Notice that. He doesn't say, or me, prisoner of Rome, or me, the prisoner of Nero, or me, the prisoner of society that's got me locked up for no reason. No, he says, capital, his prisoner. 
Paul has always looked at himself as a bondservant of God. He is a prisoner of Christ. Ephesians 3, 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Philippians 1, 12-14, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. But join with me in suffering. If you are in 1 Peter 4, 14 through 16, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and the gospel and, the, and of God rest on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to the glory, but is to glorify God in his name. And then Acts 541. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Paul considered it joy to suffer for Christ. He was never ashamed of Christ because he knew his place. He was a prisoner of Christ. He was going to do what Christ had called him to do. And you see that through the next statement. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. He wants him to join with him. How many times do we go to somebody and say, hey, I want you to join with me in suffering, right? I think we do sometimes. We go mountain biking a lot of times, and I think sometimes that is suffering, right? 100-degree weather, and we're climbing hills on a bike. That could be suffering in a way, not what he's talking about here. But sometimes we do get that invitation. We're like, yeah, we'll suffer with you through that or work out or whatever you're doing. But do we truly suffer for Christ as he suffers, as he's calling him to join with him in suffering? Now, he's not saying, hey, come sit in prison with me and hang out, right? He's not wanting to do that. He's saying, I need you to carry on the mission, and you're going to suffer through these things. Later on, we'll see in chapter 3, you know, in difficult times, men will turn away from the gospel. It's not going to get easier, right? So he's saying, hey, join with me in this suffering. So do we do that? Do we, do we join with Paul? Do we join with Timothy? In suffering for the gospel? No, we should, you know. We should find it joy, like Paul does. James 1, 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Romans 5, 3, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings out perseverance. So how do we suffer these days? We're, we're, not, we're not imprisoned, right, here. But what are ways that we kind of suffer for the gospel the testimony in, in America or in the South even. Or maybe you do. If you do suffer, please share that. So this is an interactive time. Anybody ever suffered for? Where, yeah, Jim.
That's what Jim's saying. You can be, you can, you're going to suffer if you try to share the gospel in your workplace, right? Or even, even outside when you're sharing the gospel. How else can you? This goes to the youth in here too. If you're trying to share the gospel somewhere or whatever, how do you, have you suffered, or how may we have to suffer at some point for our faith in sharing the gospel? Any of you youth play sports? Everybody raise their hands, right? How, how might you have to suffer in your sports? Maybe I'm not asking the right question. <laughs> yeah. And what's the consequence of that? What's the suffering through that because you do that? You stand out. So, yeah, that's, that's a good that's a good point. Another way to suffer is in the pocketbook, right, or the wallet, because you want to give your kids a good education, a Christian education. Yeah. What other ways? Yeah, so in, in government, if you're trying to hold a, a position of politics, you try to hold your morals and your standards and, and to Christ's word, you're going to suffer because you're probably not going to get elected, right? Cause you're, and you're going to probably suffer because they're going to attack you even harder, right? What about your family relationships? Everybody in here, all their family members are believers? No. no I, can, I can look at it. I know a few of you have suffered by preaching the word to your family members, right? Um, you know, me personally, I have that situation with my family, and it uh, may get to a head point soon where I'm, I'm going to have to go to Scripture, and when Jesus says, you know, you forsake your mother and father, follow me, um, it may end up like that for me pretty soon, for my mom, unfortunately. You know, and that's hard, right? Um, that's a way that we will have to suffer, but I'm not backing down from my, my beliefs. I'm not backing down from continuing to preach the gospel and to live out that life, um, but we'll suffer those, those things. How about, about even among other believers? Bless you. 
can we suffer among other believers? I won't call you out because you're shaking your head. How do we suffer, Cindy? You're shaking your head, yes. I do, though. <laughs> yeah. No, that's perfect. That's what I was, was going to hit on. It's like we live together or something, and she sees my notes. I'm just kidding. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, we do suffer that way, right? I mean, how many people that you run into when you start to talk, especially this, these days and age, but um, when you talk about how that the Lord speaks through his word, and that's it. It's not verbal. It's not um, feeling like you get ostracized in some groups, right? Or you're just like, oh, you don't understand this. Or, oh, you're a legalist. You know, we get that a lot, too. Um, you know, you're not open-minded, you're closed-minded. That is suffering, right? I mean, Paul's talking about suffering the gospel. He's not talking about necessarily suffering in prison or suffering, suffering heart, uh, beat, getting beat or anything like that. He's suffering for you. That is suffering. You're getting alienated from family, from friends, because you're holding to the truth, right? But hopefully it gives you encouragement when you do that, right? Um, anything else? Anything else where you think you can, Yeah. What I'm saying is that, so suffering can be a good thing too, where the Bible talks about iron sharpens irons, right? And some of that, some of that iron sharpening is you're getting softer or you're suffering through something because somebody's brought something to you, right? It challenges you on a, maybe a theological thing. Maybe they've challenged you on a sin in your life, but it makes you stronger, but you're going to suffer a little bit between that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's Paul doing right here to Timothy? It's kind of like that, right? He's telling Timothy, look, you need to step up and carry this on. He's sharpening Timothy right now, right? So, yeah, I like, thank you, Mark. Talking about suffering is just in order, just everyday life, the things that you go through, and trying to put a, put a, put the death of sin in the flesh, and living for Christ. So I mean, it is you know we hear all the time, oh you know you come to Christ and everything gets better, right? That's kind of a, one of the gospel messages out there, which is a false gospel. I mean, he's told us we were going to suffer, like we were going to be persecuted, we were going to go through hard times, 
Because this is not our life, right? Our life is going to be in heaven with him. That's, that's when everything gets easier and the joy. You know, I, I was uh, listening to a pastor well, was a long time ago. And, I, you know, I didn't, you think about eternity and I'm like, oh, when I die, eternity starts. No, when you're saved, eternity starts. Your eternal life begins the moment you are saved. And so you're living that life for God because that's what we're going to be doing in heaven, right? So, yeah, but you're going to be suffering in some way, some form now. Not that you don't have joy every now and then. It's not that you don't enjoy your life or you don't enjoy the things that God has given us and the, and the beauty that he's surrounded us with. But when it comes to the gospel and trying to live out the gospel and trying to share the gospel with others, there's going to come some suffering. The other question is, do you, do you see that as a joy? And I won't open that up for discussion, but think about that. We think about suffering for Christ, but do we see it as Paul did, as joy? And I, I got I to be honest, sometimes, no. It's not joyful when you're arguing with your mom about religious stuff sometimes. It's not joyful sometimes when you don't get invited to go to things because of your beliefs or, you know, it's not joyful sometimes when I'm on work meetings and work trips and I'm back in my hotel room and everybody else is out because I'm not participating in a lot of that stuff. You know, so sometimes it's, but I got to turn around and be joyful there, right? Um, and we got to have that attitude. So it's a constant life change, it's constant, just always making sure that your mind is focused on Christ and that it is joy for you. And because joy brings, that brings joy, joyfulness to Christ, right? Well, what's nice about this is that he did not leave us without anything. He's joined with me in suffering for the gospel. For what? According to the power of God. Sometimes I think when I look at the power of God, and we go back to verse 7, because I think that's what he's referring to a little bit, and he's going to revert to 9 and 10, which I'll get to in a second. But verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity. He's not given us a spirit of fear. But he's given us a spirit of power and love and discipline. And I didn't get to hit on this a lot last week, but I think we underestimate that power. You have, if you are a believer, you have the living God in you. The power of God who raised Christ from the dead, who saved you from your sins. I think sometimes we don't understand it or we underestimate that power. Like we're always like we, we live this life just for the spirit inside of us to keep knocking down the sin in our lives. That's powerful. Like we think of power in other ways sometimes. I like think of a, a big strong man lifting a lot of weight or we think of, uh, you know, sending fire from, he from heaven down and, and destroying cities. And we see that's, that's the power of God. But when we realize, realize our sinfulness and how sinful and, just, and far away from God we are because of our sin and the power that is within us and the power that God has to bring us back into that right relationship with him, that's powerful. That's more power than sending bolts of lightning from heaven because that brings us into a right relationship with God. And that's the power he's given us through his spirit. And not only that, he's given us a spirit of love. And this love is not a emotional love. It's not a love that looks at others and has a desire just to outside with emotional feelings or um, I love them today because they're doing something for me. No, this is a, a sacrificial love. You know, Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. That's the love that this is talking about. The Spirit gives us that love for each other. And hopefully, if you're a believer, you felt that love for people. Right? It's not, a, it's not a, out of guilt or out of um, selfish ambition. It's a love because you truly love one another. 
And Jesus says that, right? How will you know that they're my believers if you love one another? So he gives us that love. We don't have to rely on our own. On our own. And then he gives us that love of discipline. Or I like it translated better, sober-minded. We're not letting the world and other distractions infiltrate our brains. We're letting the word of God permeate through our lives. We are allowing his spirit to move us. We're allowing his spirit to help us to walk in the right, right way. We need his spirit and his power to permeate through us. And by doing that, the spirit will put down the flesh if we rely on that. And how often do we do that? It's not easy, right? There's a lot of stuff coming at us. There's a lot of our own faults to get mixed in. There's a lot of questioning sometimes. But the scriptures are clear that we have to put off the flesh and we have to put on the spirit. We have to let the spirit work through us. We don't need to quench the spirit. What quenching the spirit means is you're not letting the spirit work out the things in your life that it's supposed to do. It's not working out the fruits of the spirit. Right? That's what quenching the spirit means. We need to let him live through our life. And how do we do that? We do it through his word. The word tells us how it, how it works and how it does. Right here, this is one, do not be ashamed of the testament of our Lord and Savior. That's one way not to allow the spirit to work through us. And so we're not ashamed. So that's the power of God, guys. And now I'm going to move into 9 and 10. And these verses are, this is the salvation. This is the doctrine of salvation in two verses. Because he ends verse 8 with the power of God. And what more powerful thing did God do, like I said before, than to save us? So when we get to 9 and 10, we're going to see salvation listed out here. We could spend, Greg has done a great job on this in past sermons on election and all that stuff, which we'll hit a little bit here. But that's not the flow that Paul has here. Paul's continually going through, and I think Paul, as he's writing Timothy, he's the power of God, and he's just reflecting on the power that God has in our lives, and, it, and what better way than to show that but through our salvation. So the power of God, verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which has granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And when I first read that, I feel like Paul wrote it backwards. And what do I mean by that? Well, if we look from, from all eternity, where's, how's eternity? Before time began, we have the beginning. Before time began, he's chosen us before then, right? In Christ. And then he goes back and he called us and he saved us. He didn't save us, call us, and then all goes back in time to think about it, right? No. Scripture is clear in so many ways that he is from beginning time, we were written the book of life, that our names are written there before time began. And then it is Christ, I mean, it is God who calls us with a, an effectual call. So this is not like getting on the phone, hey, I want you to come over. It's not a summons. This is a moving call that moves through you, that you have no choice other than to give in to that call. It's an effectual call. And he does it by saving us. This is very important. Because in half a second, verse 9, he says, not according to our works. Look back at Acts 16. Remember the story of Lydia. 
Lydia hears Paul preaching as he sits down and he's preaching, and him and Luke, and his, who was with him, was preaching to some women. And it says, Lydia was there, and she heard the word, and God moved in her, and she believed. She didn't believe before God moved in her, right? God had that effectual call inside of her to move her towards belief. But it came from hearing the word. And we know that to be true. Titus 2.5 says, He saved us, not on the basis of deed, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And that second part, he saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. There is nothing that we can do. There is no righteousness act. There is no good act that we could do to come to Christ or for him to accept us. This is all his choosing. This is all his will from the beginning of time. We know that from other parts of scripture that are clear on that calling and not works. Even in the story when the, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, Jesus' response was, why do you call me good? There is no one good except for God. We, unfortunately, actually fortunately, are not good. We are dead in our sins until Christ, until God calls us with that effectual call. Because we can work our whole lives trying to do righteous deeds, and it'll never be good. The only way that we are looked at as righteous before, before God is through Christ. And that's what he's saying. That's the power of God. And it wasn't just a normal calling. It's a holy calling because you're called to something greater, right? You're called to a holy calling, not an ordinary one, but you're called to be holy, to be righteous. All based on what God did for us. We're called not according to our works, but we're according to his own purpose and grace. Without God's grace, there is no salvation. We're called for his purpose. When you read that, what do you think? What is his purpose? What is God's purpose for our life? Why did he save us? Did God need us in heaven? Does he need our fellowship? No. Bridget's shaking her head no. I didn't say that. She's, she's answering. She's shaking her head no. So why did he save us? For what is his purpose? What is the purpose that he saved us for? To bring him more glory. Right? And how do we bring him more glory? Yeah. And we do that by preaching his word purpose we are saved is to, to continue to preach his word, to share the gospel, the testimony of our Lord throughout. That's the purpose, to bring him glory, to show the mercy and grace that he has, to continue to spread the gospel, which is the great commandment. And that's the purpose. So when you say, oh, you, when you think about life and you're like, man, what's the purpose of life? If you're a believer, you shouldn't have to ask that question. The question should be, am I living out that purpose? 
Am I following through on the purpose that God has given me? And hopefully we are. Do we do it perfectly? No, because we're unfortunately human and we sin. But should we strive to do it perfectly? Yes, just like Paul was doing. And again, it says, the purpose and grace which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Christ is not a created being. I don't think I have to tell that to anybody in here. Christ, obviously, from these words right here, Christ has been from all eternity. We were chosen in Christ from all eternity. And I, it's, I don't know about y'all, I can't comprehend eternity. <laughs> I, yeah, I think, I think uh, me being alive for 44 years has been forever. But as, as we get older, time flies, right? But I just, I can't comprehend eternity. And it's hard for me to comprehend time before eternity, which was no time. Well, I can't get into that because my mind's starting to get a little crazy there, right? But the point here is that Christ has been from the beginning with God from all eternity past. And that we were granted life through him. It was the plan from the beginning, right? It wasn't something that Adam and Eve messed up in the garden. God had to re-scramble and get his thoughts together and say, like, how am I going to do this? No, this was planned from the beginning. And Christ has always been around. Christ is the second part of the Trinity. And Christ is the key, right? Obviously the key, because in verse 10 he says, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Just like in 2 Peter says, the prophets searched the scriptures to figure out the time and the place when the Messiah was coming. They didn't understand these things. It was a mystery to them. But now we know in the fullness of Christ that that is, he is who he was. And he did what he was going to say he was going to do. When he appeared, it was the fulfillment of all the scriptures. It's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Everything that was prophesied in the Old Testament, which he said before, what the scriptures testify about me. Moses, Moses, all the way back in Exodus, talked about Christ. God will raise up you a prophet like me, but a greater one. He was prophesied from the beginning. All the way back into the garden, Christ was being prophesied about. But now when he appeared, this is the appearing that we know and see now. There are some other Scriptures where it uses the same word appearing, but this, which usually uh, refers to Christ's second coming. But obviously here we can see that this word is definitely used to show that his first coming. Because through Christ coming and dying on the cross for our sins, it was all revealed and we see it. And what did he do? It says here, he abolished death and he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He abolished death. You go back up to verse 7. He did not give us a spirit of fear. We should not fear anything. What do most people fear in the world? Death, right? You know, I go, I'll go back to my mom, and it's, it's, uh, she's getting older now. Um, you know, I don't think she's that old. I think she's still got a lot of time left. But she's getting older, and she's retired, and she's trying to find things to do. And she seems to be focusing, when you say, sending more on her impending death. And she acts like she's not scared. She's scared. You know why I know she's scared? Because she actually talked to me about the things of Scripture. She doesn't agree with me. She wants to argue with me. But I think she's searching because she knows she doesn't have the truth. But we're believers. We don't have to fear death. Hebrews 2.14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, Christ, also partook of the same, 
that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So he's rendered death powerless. He was our first resurrection. And we will be raised with him with new bodies, glorified bodies, to spend eternity with him in heaven. So Christ abolished death when he went to the cross. And what did he bring to us? He brought life and immortality. We actually now can see what immortality is going to look like, what life is going to look like. We see it through the scriptures, we see it through his words, we see it through all the epistles that were written. Shows us what it's going to be like with Christ in heaven. And what immortality looks like. And we see it all through the gospel. Again, I think Paul's pretty clear through these verses what's most important to him. And that's the gospel. He mentions it several times. The testament of our Lord, according to his gospel, preach the gospel. And if we go, when we go through all through Timothy, the word is so important to him. The gospel presentation is the most important. And the true gospel, not a fake gospel, not a false gospel, the true gospel. And that's what he's encouraging Timothy here to do. And in verse 11, he follows it up clearly with his calling. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Proclaim the gospel. That's what he's saying here. I was appointed to spread the word. And it's interesting when you look at this, he's like, well, why would he list out three different things? Why do he have to say I'm a preacher and an apostle and a teacher? Isn't a preacher and a teacher the same thing? No, it's not. But we look at that and we see... In the old time, a preacher was a herald, someone who proclaimed a message of the king. So he is, I don't know if ever, everybody's seen older movies, probably shouldn't name certain things, but they would come out and they would announce people and they would say, this is, you know, with a big loud trumpet thing and just now, here comes the king, here comes the king. Um, and so that was what he was doing, is that he was proclaiming the message of the king and the king's telling him what to say and he is just spreading it as loud as he can. That's what it meant to be a preacher. And we know Paul was great at that. Paul went out through all of my Asia Minor, three missionary journeys to proclaim the message, the true gospel. He was not ashamed. He was so bold to even, he wanted to present it before the Roman emperor himself, Caesar. So he was a preacher. He wanted to proclaim God's message to anybody and everybody everywhere. And then it says he's an apostle. We know what apostle is, one who is sent. But again, it shows Paul's authority. Like in verse 1, he's showing them that, look, I have a message to proclaim from the king, and I have the authority because I was sent by the king. I am an apostle. And then he also claims, and a teacher. So a teacher, to me, is, we have teachers, and you have seminary teachers, you have teachers now, hopefully your parents teach you a little things, but a teacher back then was a master of certain subjects. And we know Paul was a master of the scriptures. Acts 22, 3, Paul says, I am a Jew born in Taurus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamil, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was the up-and-coming next one. He knew the scriptures inside and out. And that's one thing attracted him to Timothy, Right? Timothy was taught the scriptures from a young age from his mother and his grandmother. He knew the scriptures. But Paul is saying here that I am not just proclaiming and preaching, but I also know them in and out. I know the scriptures in and out, and I know the gospel in and out. I and mean, when we go back and look at 
he was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, and he had to go back in the Jewish council in Acts 15 and discuss a certain aspect of the rites, and hey, the, Jews, the Gentiles don't have to follow all these rituals. And they had to get together with the other apostles, and they came to agreement that that is true. I mean, Paul knew. Paul was a master teacher sent by Christ himself to proclaim the gospel to anyone and everyone. So my challenge for you guys is this, twofold. One, do not be ashamed. And there is no reason for us to be ashamed. If you are a believer, you have the living God living inside of you. You have the Holy Spirit or the Trinity inside of you. Don't push it down. Don't, don't quench him. Let him come out. Do not be ashamed. I challenge you to continue in your life and work, school, sports teams, families. Continue to share the gospel. It's not easy. Sometimes it's uh, painful. But do it with gentleness. Be that fragrance, that aroma that they need. But continue to share the gospel. And if you do suffer, have the attitude of Paul. And be joyful that you get to suffer for the gospel. Proclaim it. The only time you should ever be ashamed is if you're not willing to share the gospel. Then you should be ashamed. And I challenge you too, as Paul here, become a master of the scriptures. Continue to dive in to these verses, to the word of God, to the doctrines that are so essential and so important, and mainly the, the gospel presentation, the gospel of salvation, because that's most important. Have that down. Become a master of that. So when you are sharing that with other people, the spirit comes out in you, and that power can resonate, and they can see the power of Christ in you. That's my challenge for you today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for the power that you have put inside of us, the spirit who is able to push down the sin in our lives, to get rid of, to help us to put off the flesh and put on the fruits of the spirit. We thank you for that. We thank you for how powerful you are. You are God, the one and only the God of heaven and earth, the creator of all things. You are the God who saved us. You are the God who has called us from eternity past through Christ to spend eternal life with you. How precious is that, Lord? Lord, there is nothing that you have hidden from us. You have given us all things that we need for life and godliness through your word. And Lord, I pray that we would continue to study, to dive into it every day, to become masters of it so that we can share it with others, Lord. Help us to be a congregation that sharpens one another. Help us to be teachable. Help us to be able to take correction rightly so that we would be more useful to you in your service. Or to help us to have loving, loving spirits among each other and among the world, a love that surpasses all understanding. Lord, help us to go forth as we go through this week to honor you in all things, to serve you in all things, and no matter what, to never be ashamed of the gospel and never be ashamed of Christ. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Christ, I pray. Amen.